0: Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of our show sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Mentorship is 20 hours of top class online video strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Secondly, I want to give a shout out to Altus 360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Thirdly, I want to give a huge shout out to Joseph Johnson at Ultimate Athlete Concepts. Ultimate Athlete Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Athlete Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation educational material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Programme Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beast, Athlete's Acceleration which is another online medium that delivers excellent continuing educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, you can check out the show notes to get links to all the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus 360 and the Altus Foundation coaching course, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before today's interview, I just wanted to let all listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel like you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you would be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling. Let's get into today's interview. Consultant James Smith from Global Sport Concepts is back on with me for his monthly interview on the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast. In this episode, James and I discuss moral character, which is a topic covered in his book, The Governing Dynamics of Coaching, and its importance within high-performance sports. As always, this was another excellent episode with James, and I hope you guys really enjoyed it. Okay, James, we are recording. Thank you so much for making time as always. Um how have you been since we last spoke?
1: I'm um, well. I just finished a 5 week on the road. In fact, I just got back in town last night about midnight East Coast time with Larry Fitzgerald who is an NFL wide receiver who I've worked with for the last five years. And so we just finished our fifth year of pre-training camp preparation. And he's, Larry's actually the only athlete that I I work with because as, as you know, I'm consulting for coaches and executives and so on. And so once, once, once a year I work with an athlete and that's with Larry and actually Robbie, what, what will sort of segue us into what we'll be speaking about today is I'm always giving analogies from individuals who I interact with, whether it's on a business or personal basis from outside of the sports community and the speed at which these individuals who have no particular experience in the sports community assimilate the concept of the governing dynamics particularly the concept of the global load management, this analogy to complete coaching competency, the speed at which this is assimilated is so much faster and, in my own personal experience, utterly unanimous with respect to every individual I speak with. And so for those who follow American football, you know, Larry is a very prominent figure. Mm. He is f- fantastically popular, and outside of sport, he has been very savvy in advancing his business acumen. And as a result, the networks with which he operates outside of sport are robust and profound. And he's had the opportunity to form relationships with some of the most powerful business tycoons in the U.S. and the world. And as a result of the friendship that I have developed with Larry and all the traveling that I do with him for these five- to six-week periods, by proxy, I have had the opportunity to meet these individuals. And so I have another story to share, once again, of how not only rapidly the theory of the, of the competency of leadership is, a, is assimilated by these non-sports people. But again, how it actually has long since already existed in these other domains, but not yet in sport. And so I'm not going to mention names. However, in one of our, this was just maybe two or three weeks ago, trips in the continental U.S., Speaking with two of the, I'm I'm pretty confident in stating that on you know the Forbes list that these these are two individuals who would appear very high on perhaps a top ten list of most successful businessmen in the United States in so, terms of so, their.
0: So basically, there there is a they're as big as a deal as Ron Burgundy. I'm kind of a big deal. <laughs>
1: That's correct. (laughs) Very, 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 very wealthy individuals and and both of these individuals who I'm thinking of are in their 80th decade of life. So they've been around a long time. And one of them was asking me, you know, what do you do with Larry? And I explained, explained, well, I, I, I function with Larry is what my argument for a competent wide receivers coach would function for a wide receiver and in explaining more of that, I get into this discussion of what it means to be competent from beginning to end, leaving no void in subject matter knowledge. And so going from the cultural to the psychological, all the way down to the nuances of mechanics, et cetera, And I, I said, so sake, for sake of example, because these individuals, as you can imagine, all almost universally have private chefs. And I I really enjoy using the cooking example of the executive chef that knows how to do everything, even though they don't do everything anymore because they're supervising other specialists who do the nuanced trades. Yet what makes the executive chef different from the sport coach is that the analog of the executive chef in sport Can just as easily handle all of the rehabilitation, all of the psychological interventions, all of the underpinning load programming, all of the mechanical evaluations, all of the cultural establishment, all of the things that we have these different specialists in sport for, yet in whom the head coach is not required and rarely does have an understanding of their trade graphs. And so I'm explaining this. And he says, well, that makes perfect sense. He says, because when I first started, which, you know, for these individuals was, you know, 50 years ago in their industries, he spoke to me, he said, James, he said, I did every single job that was required to understand the specifics of my business. And and that's what allowed me, excuse me, I, I thought this was you know, this is both obvious after you hear it, yet profound when you, if you haven't thought of it yet.
0: Hmm.
1: It, it's what allows for robust, more robust relationships to exist from the standpoint of leadership with subordinates because you actually have a deep understanding of what they do.
0: Yeah.
1: And beyond that, you're that much more of a competent leader from the standpoint of solving problems, and he even he gave an example of even how, for years, you know, of course, at, at this level of wealth, everyone has their own private jets that are capable of you know transoceanic travel, and he was explaining to me how his pilot was also the mechanic of his own airplane. for for the same reason, that it's not, it wasn't just a matter of knowing how to operate the airplane, but how to actually fix it if problems would arise. And So again, we have another example of of just how this, one would be very, very hard pressed to isolate a head sport coach, particularly in the team and combat sport domains, who serves as a appropriate analog to any one of these number of other examples in which this concept of global load management exists in these other domains. And so this was the most recent one that I have to share with the listening audience as we will be discussing, you know, one of the substrates of these governing dynamics.
0: Great stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of that. Uh, I don't know. Was it the, I don't think it was our last podcast, but in, in one of the many podcasts we've done at this stage where you asked um, was it someone in IT? It was someone in a different domain. But you asked them, member, uh, I don't know, they, they were, I think they were in the sciences. Well, anyway, you'll, you'll, you'll correct me in a second. But uh, you asked them, like, you know, how would you go about like, uh, preparing someone for this sport? And, and they say, well, first of all, I'd probably try and understand what the sport entails, like a needs analysis. And you were like, precisely. And you were like, see, this person gets it.
1: Yes, he, he, was, a, he was a Google
0: that's computer a science guy. Yes. All right. I just want to pull up that. Uh, here we go. All right. So topic for today: um, moral character, which uh, I just personally myself I just found you know intriguing to be honest. Um, on page uh, forty-seven. Well, I'm not going to give away the whole book here, <laughs> but uh, page forty-seven. You have what's called the uh, pyramidal structure of professional success. Uh, at the foundation you have moral character um, and then uh, on top of that is infrastructure which is the individual's tradecraft and then the apex then is psychological preparation. So the topic I, I put forward to you today was moral character and just before I let you take the floor and um, the very next page you speak about the foundation for long-term success in so many professional endeavors so not just with an athlete is amplified by an individual's moral character and then you have a list here that's sort of um, you know, pertains to what it what what is within moral character, and I'll just name these, and then as I said, you can take it away. So shows up on time, doesn't make the same mistake twice, is reliable, trustworthy, does what he she says they're going to do, and you only have to ask them uh, once. Sees work through to its completion, finishes what they start, integrity, does it the right way regardless of who's watching, and then finally all or nothing. If they do something, they put one hundred percent into the task so uh and as well you kind of have a summary here saying that you know moral qualities um are the ones that the employer would want in any of their employees and that the employee would want in their leadership so it's a, it works both well ways um, noble qualities as they are however there is in no way uh, they, they in no way state anything about one's profession because an individual in possession of robust moral character is a viable candidate for any profession so uh moral character take it away sir To
1: begin, definitions. I always enjoy starting with this in reference to an MIT professor's lecture on thermodynamics that I watched many many years ago now who I constantly reference this discussed by learning the definitions of terms. you, you get yourself about halfway there to understanding the concept as a whole, so everyone has heard of morals and morality and character and the rest yet if we ask everyone what's the definition of these words, the question is, are we getting many different versions? Mm. And so Oxford Dictionary tells us that morality is principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong or good and bad behavior. And so clearly, this is a broad landscape upon which we must specify because... We want to minimize error and character also defined by Oxford dictionary by association is the mental and moral qualities distinctive to an individual. So nothing controversial here, regardless of what any of the listeners might've had come to mind. When I say, what are the definitions of these words? We, We hear them and we say, yes, That makes sense. That's generally what I thought. And similarly, I would argue, you know, you hear me using the word uncontroversial often in the book, that no one balks at the proposal of both the significance of the moral character for any profession and, as I indicate in the book, the fact that just because you have a robust moral character does not ensure that you're a high prof- performer in any particular discipline. Because obviously we see an absence of profound moral character in a variety of the most high-profile leadership positions. Hmm. Perhaps the one that comes to mind most recently, I, in the United States, there's a very popular pizza franchise referred to as Papa John's, and one of the founders and figureheads of this pizza franchise he's appeared all over the media sports media because they've linked with a lot of professional athletes particularly in the NFL and so his face has been all over the US media just within the past couple of weeks has stepped down because of what we can frame here an absence of moral character in his case he made racial comments that were derogatory in some sort of a board meeting in which complaints were filed and ultimately led to his demise. And so here's just another one of the myriad examples of leadership, in this case, multiple eight, nine-figure wealth leadership of a major, in this case, U.S. company, utterly absent of moral character because – one who is in possession of a robust moral character is certainly not a racist. And then beyond that does not make racial claims amongst stakeholders. And so it, it spans the spectrum on upon which everyone is placed with respect to their hierarchical role. And What I expound upon in the governing dynamics of coaching is, while it may be clear enough that this particular attribute is utterly relevant, even though it's not required, it's relevant and, in my argument, should be required. And I think that's uncontroversial. For any position, any level, there must be an understanding in place of how to contribute to its development. And this brings us to what is currently a popular subject matter for discussion amongst individuals who, according to the brilliant mathematician and managing director of field capital, Eric Weinstein, he's termed the intellectual dark web and people who are enthusiasts of Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson and Dave Rubin and Ben Shapiro and Brett Weinstein and his brother Eric Weinstein, who I just mentioned, will be familiar with this terminology. And as it regards moral character, there's, as I stated, a hotly discussed subject matter, which is sort of split down the line between the crowds of neuroscientists sam harris and clinical psychologist jordan peterson in in which the, the differences of viewpoint in how morality is developed and whether or not it traces back to religious or monotheistic narratives and archetypes which is the case made by dr peterson whereas with dr harris the the argument is that we can arrive at these same outcomes—psycho, intellectual, behavioral—sort of. I'm, I'm, go- I'm encapsulating these under morality through reason, and and not relying upon religious narratives and archetypes, as much of the the Western world was is influenced by the Judeo-Christian underpinnings. The argument that we can achieve a sense of morality without these historical references is substantiated on the basis of what we know about reason and rationality. And this is something that's currently hotly debated, and there's certainly a a strong argument to be made from both sides as to the discussion of how are we contributing to the development of morality in the organizational system, sport being one of them, I think it's important to you know, pick pick your philosophy. Where is, this gonna, where is it going to come from? Because this is an aspect of the cultural bedrock. And we've discussed previously how culture is the bedrock. Absolutely no thought or behavior arises without cultural influence. And the argument that I make in the book is there is no problem, no matter how specific or acute that might arise in a sports organization or any other that is unattached from cultural significance we, we can always trace back the origin of this problem to a cultural flaw. And for that reason, I think it's important to hit upon again what culture actually is because it too often gets reduced to the subject matter of our discussion here. It too often gets reduced only to morals or ethics, which in fact are only aspects of what more broadly consists of as culture. And so what is culture? What does it mean? And this is another one where I would challenge listeners to square what they think it means because it's probably something much closer to what I said. Well, it's, you know, what's the culture of your sports organization? What you're probably going to get is some answer localized to morals, The types of statements that look good on a t-shirt or on a poster in the halls of the building or the locker room. And this is not what culture is. What culture is actually depends upon who you ask with respect to professionals who spend a lot of time thinking about this subject matter. So from an evolutionary psychology, evolutionary biology standpoint, you get culture is quite literally information stored at the level of the DNA and it most sort of specifically represents about seven generations of each individual's ancestry in terms of what is passed at the level of DNA and how this genetic information influences the bulk of the significant decisions and behavioral tendencies we have throughout life we're born with more cultural information than was ever understood prior to which most recently been discovered some examples the the type of sociological groups societal groups political groups Tendencies to subscribe to religious beliefs and more are all influenced by cultural information that we are born with, separate from epigenetic influence. We're actually born with this information, which of course is nuanced with the environmental epigenetic set of exposures and experiences. From a different perspective, we get, you know, physicists David Deutsch and others have described culture as this it's a set of ideas that influences all thought and behavior. And if we look the definition of culture up in Oxford Dictionary, we get the collective of human intellectual achievement, the arts, the aesthetics, and the collective of human intellectual achievement. So in any case, now... Most recently, Robbie, one of the NFL teams that I consult for, I had a a long discussion with the general manager and the defensive coordinator. And I was explaining this to both of them. And, you know, time and time again, it's always new information because this is just not part of the process of... Be being whether it's educated, mentored, or however, however the process exists into achieving these positions in sport or otherwise. So whether we look at it from the evolutionary, biological, psychological standpoint, whether we look at it from the space of the set of ideas that influences all thought, all behavior, or Oxford Dictionary, we get something much different than what most individuals in sport would answer to the question What is your team's culture? And this is important because the space of possibilities that exists to establish, let's just for the sake of our discussion, we'll refer to it as the set of ideas that influences all thinking and behavior is vast. And therefore, understanding How, at the local level, the set of cultural influences that impacts the thinking and behavior of all humans is varied. Yes, we have the profound genetic implications upon which, however, enters the life experience. And this is the thing that is highly variable. So we've got the familial unit, whether that's guardians, whether that's biological parents, whoever, siblings, peer groups. What evolutionary psychology has shown us is that pre-adolescent peer groups are more influential on the developing psychobehavioral qualities than the actual family unit. This is something that was new. It was previously thought that... The family unit was the most profound, you know, epigenetic influence on behavioral psychology. Turns out that pre-adolescent peer groups are even more influential, hmm. and this just speaks towards the variability. So now, let's say you're a sport coach, and we we have to specify at what level. So almost, you know If I just speak towards my experience. Almost the totality of my consulting exists at the professional or international level, and so we're dealing with chronologically older individuals who have that much more epigenetic cultural influences by the time you're interacting with them. Along with that, however, is a greater probability of a higher level of intellectual aptitude simply as a result of having that much more broad-based set of cultural experiences, which is why, theoretically, you encounter individuals with the most wisdom who are in their later years of life. Now, we distinguish this, of course, because this could easily fall into the parochial misconception that experience equates to knowledge, which is not the case. And we've, we've, we've talked about that enough that it should be clear to the listeners.
0: That horse is well dead.
1: Yes, it is. It is. And we, we know that knowledge does not in fact derive from sense impression as the empiricists would advocate that it only results from what is criticized and conjectured. And so, the longer you are alive, the greater amount of opportunity you have to criticize, the greater the opportunity you have to conjecture what the existing consensus understanding is, and that combined with experience, because another misconception from the standpoint, of I'm steelmanning those who would criticize me, is that What I'm not stating is that there is no utility to experience, not at all, simply that it does not relate to knowledge, creation, or gain in the way that most people think it does. It's the experiences themselves that must be criticized. And so this is the value of the experience. Yes, experience has an extraordinary value if it is criticized effectively in order to assimilate what is derivable from those criticisms of those experiences. And so the longer you live, the more opportunity you have. So by no means is it a guarantee, but it certainly is a, an opportunity. And so the chronological age of the athlete pins towards this. So we, we can really only speak about this from a statistical reference frame, because obviously there's exceptions to every level. You have the children who demonstrate wisdom beyond their years you know the colloquialisms of old souls and everyone has seen this in in very young people and so if we just and 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 alternatively we know there's an extraordinary amount of ignorance that exists in later chronological years so let's just agree to speak about this statistically In terms of, which is to say, let's just think about really, really large numbers of athletes and sports teams around the world. And we'll generalize that the older they are, the greater, up to a point, the greater position they'll be in to assimilate more sophisticated levels of dialogue. Because this is is what answers the question how, James? Going on what you're saying, James, if if this is true that culture is as big and as important as implicated as as you, and I should say Robbie that it's not that I, I think it's pretty ubiquitous around the world that all coaches understand that culture is the most important thing that that's not the misconception. The misconception is regards what is culture. That that's the misconception. Not not it's not the fact that it is actually the most important thing or or how important it is. And so when I'm asked how then to develop it, the answer is dialogue. It's actually a conversation. And the ornaments to the conversation are the other aspects of behavioral influence that can be generated as a result of what a leader is capable of doing at the ground level it's the communication. it is the dialogue and what we're what we're doing here granted i'm doing a bit of lecturing is an example of this it's an example of the the type of interaction that is necessary to cast light upon the objective truth of these Claims, and as it regards the the objective truth, Robbie, this is something that, as as you're aware, I am criticized for my advocacy for objectivity, and in fact, this was I just I just had a podcast a couple weeks ago. I'm not sure it'll be posted shortly uh, with with Josh and the, the Just Kicking It crew where I had the discussion with Jamie Hamilton. Oh so we, we yeah we linked up and we had a very productive discussion. So that will that'll be posted sometime soon and and it's it centered around how this objectivity can work and in, in the in the way that I continually come back to is we, we know at the level of decision making that there is a subjective influence apart from one simply rendering a factual reference on the basis of, you know, information memory. The The difference is where on the spectrum. So if we have, a, in most of these cases, it is a spectrum. It's not a black or white scenario so we've got a spectrum or a continuum and on one end we have subjectivity which is all the prejudice and the bias and the preconception and the personal feelings and opinions they all exist on one end and on the other is just objective facts mm-hmm. Which we, we understand are fallible and mutable over time. We can look and see how dictionary references themselves change over time, because for example, in the age of Newton, you know, Newton's theory of gravity prevailed. And it wasn't until a few hundred years later when Einstein overturned Newton's theory of gravity with general relativity. And this happens all the time where we we, we modify our understanding of the world, for example, and what existed as consensus understanding. Because when we say fact, this is tantamount to consensus agreement. This is something important philosophically for individuals to understand that the fact is not necessarily this immutable, unchanging thing. It's simply the consensus agreement that makes its way into, for example, dictionaries and encyclopedias and other sorts of, you know, physician's desk, desk references and the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. and These different references that we have is simply representing the best of our consensus understanding. And so we refer to those as facts. However, we acknowledge that, yes, facts can change. But at any given time, that's what we have to work with. We have to work with the existing facts, the existing theories, and by all means, criticize them, that that's how we advance. And so that's what we have existing at the other end of of the continuum. The objective facts is what is the consensus agreed upon to be sort of the best of prevailing knowledge. And on the other end, it's just what do you feel? What do you think? Et cetera. The question is, at the moment of decision-making, where on that continuum is that moment substantiated? Does that make sense?
0: Say it one more time. So the question the is, mo- on, on the continuum of subjectivity, where, where is the, the threshold where we can say that this is, this is a fact?
1: No, nope. what I'm saying is, at the moment of decision-making... Just how subjective or how objective is the mechanism of the decision. That's the key. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's a bit like certainty. Colloquially, certainty is thought to be this absolute thing that you're either certain or you're not. Certainty should be understood as a degree
0: it's probably Pro- probability, yeah.
1: is the most, like the most. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, the, so really, the, the, the question should never be, "Are you certain?" It should be, "How certain are you?" Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure.
1: Similarly, in in decision making, how objective are you being? How subjective mm-hmm. are you being? Mm-hmm. And so, the so as I continue to explain how. This objective approach must assume a greater and greater proportion in coaching or or most other professional disciplinary conditions, is based upon the more objective references one amasses. So, the greater the objective understanding, which is to say, the, the greater the education. Mm-hmm. And in an objective reference frame, you know, what do we know regarding the governing dynamics? Which scientific philosophical disciplines deal with culture, psychology, analysis, intellect, technique, tactics, sensory motor, neurophysiological, biodynamics, biomechanics, bioenergetics,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: physiotherapy, etc.? cetera. Wh- which, scientific, cultural, educational, professorial level domains deal with these subject matters and what do we know objectively at present time? What are the most prevailing theories? These are our objective references. Therefore, the more knowledge one has of objective references at the moment of that individual's decision making mm-hmm. the proportion of objectivity that weighs on their decision is that much greater
0: the p value will look better
1: sure that, that that's it and so that, that's the significance how subjective how objective is the decision-making. So if I circle this back to the development of morality, because all these things are mutable. So despite the genetic influence, you know, I give these examples all the time on how much we are constantly reprogramming ourselves. Just, just the fact that civility is achieved between humans is an example of reprogramming. It's an example of neuroplasticity. We are at base level, higher order primates who will eat each other to gain the upper hand. And the reason we don't do this as much as we might void of the influence of civilization is due to Reprogramming it is due to neuroplasticity. It is changes at the fundamental level of our brains and the neural connections that allow for different behaviors to emerge than what would occur naturally without any type of interventions. You see it in children all the time. the The brother and sister, the you know the the brothers older males naturally higher levels of testosterone, aggression again, this is statistical, of course, there's exceptions, F- females, higher levels of inherent nurturing, tendency, and agreeability. And how often do we see in young people playing, you know, a, examples of authoritarianism and tyranny, you know, one wrestling the toy away from the other, biting, kicking, screaming. If this behavior goes unchecked throughout life, What you get as an adult is something much different than what most individuals in the modern world would associate with responsible civilized behavior. So the reprogramming happens with every sort of parenting. It happens with almost every sort of domestic animal care in terms of training, For example, dogs to behave in certain ways, what to do, what not to do. This is reprogramming of what purely unintervened genetic predispositions will manifest as. So I state these robbies to provide context in terms of just how achievable it is to reprogramming thought and behavior. And we begin at the level of cultural understanding and we extend into realms of psychology. It's what I do as a consultant for the psychological clients that I have. And this mutability of <clears throat> excuse me, the psychological condition is real. It is tenable. And... Once again, how then, James, do we do with this? This is through amassing the knowledge that is prerequisite, according to my argument, to know how to do these things. So we don't... The, you know, the, the, the most winning sports team, individual sport athlete can achieve that state of competitive success without a robust moral character. We see it all the time. I gave the Papa John's reference as it regards just high-level business activity in in general, and we can easily point out the behavioral character flaws that are criticizable at the level of high-performance sport, and the same with coaches. It's all over the place. You do not have to have a robust moral character to achieve high results in any discipline that does not directly hinge upon your moral character.
0: Mm.
1: How many Catholic priests have been convicted of pedophilia? I mean, we, we can pick from any domain the lack of correlation between high-level leadership and moral character. It's just not, equanimity does not exist there. What I argue and ask listeners to consider is what if it did? What if it was actually a prerequisite? What if it was required to achieve levels of leadership And what would the implications be on all subordinates? And this is where profundity should arise in the contemplation of what would it actually be. This is just in the example of these behavioral attributes. Because as you know, we can go through each of the governing dynamics and ask that same question. What is the differential? <coughs> Pardon me.
0: You're right.
1: what, what is the differential that exists separating what is actually achievable <clears throat> and what is being achieved? What, what is attainable, what is knowable, and what is known? And as it regards the morality, we know that one of the key components of this definition that pertains to right and wrong and good and bad is trustworthiness. It is arguably one of the most important moral attributes
0: mm.
1: and most implicated in long term success of any relationship. Think of relationship in general terms, familial, romantic, or otherwise, and challenge yourself to think of a different moral quality that you might make a case for being more important. And you would be challenged to do so. Anyone would be challenged to arrive at some moral quality that usurps trustworthiness in the context of long-term relationship success. And the relationship that exists between coaches and staff and specialists and athletes and any one of those levels is heavily predicated upon trust. Now, I've already established these things can work and they can work well from the standpoint of winning without trustworthiness. It happens all the time. That's not the point. I am criticizing consensus here. The whole book is a criticism of the consensus. It is a set of criticisms set to inspire the question in people, what might actually be achievable if all of this existed in sport? We recognize it does not. Most of it does not. It's easy enough. The evidence is overwhelming to demonstrate it does not. What if it did? And this context of morality, how do we develop? It happens through communication. It happens through action. Through the dialogues that serve to inspire the type of contemplation and thinking that is necessary to reprogram oneself. The behavioral... Influences and then, and then, and then, what if this is achieved? And what if a profound level of trust is established between all participants to the extent that is exceeds what is currently understood? Because, again, we we can look. We can analyze and we can describe all over the place how organizations achieve isolated levels of success. For example, you know, third corner earnings in business and number of championships won in sport and we, we can isolate on specific metrics and see how they are achievable in spite of all these dysfunctions. The That's not the question. The question is what will be attainable if all these dysfunctions turn into high performing functions. So, as it regards the morality, the knowledge that underpins cultural establishment is the prerequisite, and the knowledge that underpins the type of communication, the type of dialogue, the type of interventions that influence thought and behavior must be instantiated if the result is to be attained. And that just keeps bringing us back to what I describe in the book.
0: Yeah, it's just the... the well, there's one or two things in my mind... You, you still haven't read the book Sapiens yet, have you, by Harari? I'm, f- I'm
1: familiar with it. I have not read it.
0: It's just, uh, it's funny. Like, in that book, like, you know, he talks about, like, human rights and how, like, he's like, if you really think about it, they don't actually exist. Is in, like, he said, we just, we just, the senses just agreed upon human rights. And, he, he and like, he, in the book, he's like, I'm not saying that human rights aren't a good thing, but he's like, they don't exist. So he's like, if you were a dead corpse or a dead body, and I went over to to your body, and I, I like did a dissection on. Him. He's like, there's no, I won't find human rights inside you. He's like it actually does not exist tangibly. Like he's like we just agreed upon it. But just kind of goes back then to like he'd have he'd probably have a similar position with moral character. like what is more morals, what's morality. Like it's kind of going back to kind of like what the senses have almost agreed right. upon. Him. So it just reminds me of that. And then uh, just as you were speaking there, like and, and we sort of got into. That discussion on subjectivity and objectivity, it kind of made me think about, like, not so much a question to you, but it's kind of more like my thoughts were that, well, then the more science you can know and learn and understand, the better. You know, so again, like, if we, because you were naming again all the uh, concepts covered within the government dynamics, and I mean, if we strip that back to first principles, you know, okay. You you know I love you're saying you said uh movement to sport is what like maths is to physics so if we took movement and we stripped that back you know so biomechanics really goes back into like physics and then physics goes back to maths and if you're looking more more globally then at the universe and life it's kind of like right you need to know biology but to know biology you need to know chemistry but to know chemistry you get back to physics and then to know physics you need to know maths it's kind of like the deeper you can the deeper you can go to knowledge in those objective realms, it will it will seem to favor you, favor favor you more on that continuum of subjectivity and objectivity. And where are you when you're when you're trying to make those key decisions? But uh, it is interesting, all right, You know this 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 continuum right, of subjectivity, objectivity. And, yeah, it's just I I also find it fascinating because again, uh, and uh, we've had this discussion before, and you've addressed it. But no matter what, we never ever will be like 100 percent objective and you just addressed that saying that really we should be saying we shouldn't be saying are you certain it should be more like you know are you certain that this is the most probable outcome because again we can never be 100 percent certain because again we're always going to have some subjectivity to it and then when we start talking about the level of the quantum we know we're back to just probability and chance again but you yeah, know it's, it's super super interesting that was a heavy podcast now so that's one i'm gonna have to go back and listen to two or three times and probably have follow-up questions but I don't know if you have anything else to add. If you do, you can have the floor for a few minutes.
1: I think I think that, that hits it. You know, the, the the alternative to this, so it's true, you know, what, what you just said there, Rob Robbie, there's no intelligent argument that can counter what you just said, that there's no intelligent argument against amassing as much knowledge as one can scientifically as it relates to any particular subject matter, because this is what contributes to a greater degree of objective references. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: So again, we're back to how objective are you in your decision-making? How certain are you not? Are you, it's a question of how much objectivity, how much certainty contributes and the alternative to this is something that physicist David Deutsch has stated: the the concept of a theory of everything, you know, regarding physics and the unification of quantum mechanics with gravity, et cetera. What are, what would be the implications of actually achieving a consensus, agreed upon theory of everything? And David has argued that if we actually arrived at a bona fide theory of everything, it could be potentially a terrible thing because what it would mean philosophically is there would be no more questions. So from an intellectual standpoint, it would be a very bad environment to exist in because it could essentially be the end of curiosity.
0: Yeah. Yeah that's actually it's funny you bring that up because in harari's book too in the in the final chapter and it kind of bleeds into his his follow up book homo deus which is which is the successor then to um to sapiens um you know he talks about like some of his predictions is that consumerism in the future is all going to be about anti-aging essentially and trying to extend life as much as possible and, you know could we ever get to a place where you know he basically says we could live forever outside of dying from an accident. You know, we could, could we basically off well, put aging and the only way a human could die would be through a tragic traumatic accident. And uh, the one question that immediately popped in my head was that surely if you could live forever, that would destroy creativity and innovation because there'd be no constraint put on you. Like that's usually what drives most people like, fuck it. I could be gone tomorrow. So I better get the finger out and get going on my passion here. You know, whereas you'd be like, ah, I have the rest of life it's- here.
1: I would agree that the you know, finite nature of individual time that will be alive is definitely a motivating factor. However, from a broader-based perspective, that in the, the, the concept of being immortal would in no way con- constrain the, the acquisition of knowledge and the furthering of problem-solving. Because as I just indicated, short of arriving at a consensus-agreed-upon mm-hmm. theory of everything there's, you know, if if Galileo and Newton, and going back even farther, and, and Aximander and Pythagoras, if these individuals were still alive, they would still be as entrenched in, you know, the- theoretically they'd still be as entrenched as the rest of the theoretical physicists out there in understanding more and more irrespective yeah. of, the, of the fact that, you know, Aximander would be Two thousand years old plus. So, so you know, Aubrey de Grey and others who are looking into these, this notion of extending life, if if achieved, it, see, it seems almost at this point rather probable that in the next hundred years, science and medical science will discover how to substantially extend life and i would argue you know as what i just said that in no way would even the concept of immortality limit or put a constraint on the problem solving because the only way that would actually occur is if a theory of everything was
0: actually yeah, yeah, yeah. no yeah you're right you're right i just uh, i just thought it was just the instant thought that came to my head that would you know would have kind of really off to degree, what Listen. If you're fucking curious, you're curious. Even if you're, that's right. A different area, you yeah, know what you're saying. Listen, that's a uh, phenomenal as always. Uh, plenty for everyone listening to uh, to chew on. Um. So that's it for today. So moral character. Um. Lots more stuff uh, and topics to, to get through because the the Bible, as I'm starting to call it now, the the dynamics. Um is uh,
1: no, let's not do let's let's not do that let's not yeah do that. yeah yeah I won't, I, won't, I, won't. <laughs> I won't
0: just just for listeners that's a joke i'm not calling that bible but uh yeah so the but there's there's still plenty of uh, plenty of stuff to be covered in the government dynamics of coaching so uh, is there anything yet that you want to close off with is there any speaking engagements coming up for the rest of the year any new uh, books products whatever anything else coming on the horizon
1: I continue to plug away at this book I'm working on that regards uh, purely psychology, and as far as speaking engagements, no, nothing initially on the immediate future calendar. However, some really good consulting in the works, so proceeding forward. Good conversation as always. All
0: right, and website again: globalsportsconcepts.net.
1: Sport, no plural. Global sport oh, concepts.
0: Oh, so yes. globalsportconcepts.net as always will be linked up in the show notes and be sure to when you're on the website check out all the James's resources so his books oh there's a train uh, so make sure you check out his books the applied sprint manual that's a classic as well it's a great one lots and lots of coaches reference that and obviously the government dynamics of coaching a unified theory of sport preparation so James thanks a million and for all the listeners I will talk to everyone soon take care be well and stay strong